You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. Today, we're listening to a lecture called Living Your Personal Myth that Professor Campbell gave at the University of Arkansas in 1973. Joseph Campbell began his magnum opus, The Historical Atlas of World Mythology, with this statement. We live today in a terminal moraine of myths and mythic symbols, fragments large and small of traditions that formerly inspired and gave rise to civilizations. End quote. This is to say that we no longer live with authoritative, unifying, instructional, illuminating mythologies. We are too populous, too diverse. We know too much and are too possessed of material fact to truly believe that gods pull the sun across the sky or are drawn near and propitiated by the smell of roasting flesh. So what do we do now that myth seems to have fled from the world? What uses remain for myth? Professor Campbell himself said that of his four functions of myth, the second and third functions, the cosmological and sociological functions respectively, no longer have authority in modern life. The cosmological functions of myth have been superseded by the physical sciences. Astrophysics has triumphed over astrology. Just as an evolving secular law based on the changing needs of a society has triumphed over divine fiat. That leaves us with the metaphysical function, which inspires a sense of awe and wonder at the mysteries of existence, and the psychological function, which allows one to reinterpret, re-experience, and reuse the great mythical traditions that science and the conditions of modern life had rendered useless, uncoupled as they are from their cosmological and social reference points. And to realize these two functions of mythology, we must turn inward, making myth personal. Personal, in the context of mythology, suggests a private relationship to mythic symbols and story unmediated by orthodoxy or the directives and opinions of others. In personal mythology, one focuses on what the mythic narratives, images, or archetypal content says to you personally. And this can sometimes be tremendously challenging to one's self-concept, one's foundational beliefs, even one's worldview. The myth and its symbols may seem to exist outside of one's grasp, but what Wallace Stevens once said of a successful poem applies just as well to myth. Stevens said, quote, The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully, unquote. This is no less true of encountering myth in a personal way. A personal mythology asks you to explore what, exactly, the mythological metaphors and symbols mean to you personally. At what do they point you? What do they ask of you? How do they compel you? Ultimately, what do they ask of yourself to bring into the world? Personalized mythology, on the other hand, is an activity generated largely by the ego and doesn't ask much of individuals because it is largely 
a mere distraction or diversion. Knowing the stories of myth and being able to identify its motifs and archetypes is not the same as encountering mythology personally. It is not the same as living and thinking mythically. Personalized mythology is really nothing more than a parlor game whose only object is that of recognizing and identifying one's ego with the patterns of a particular myth or an archetype, while neglecting the frequently perilous challenges of archetypal realities. Personalized myths exist as banalities the ego uses for its own inflation, or alternatively as defenses against the agglomeration of challenges life presents creating a self-satisfied familiarity and a sense of predictability, confirming what one wants to be true or reconfirming what one has believed all along. Personalizing myth and its archetypal images is similar to a butterfly collector pinning a butterfly in a shadow box. The object of beauty and fascination, the object of a particular kind of awe, is no longer alive. Semiotically speaking, the butterfly thus pinned has become a sign rather than a symbol. In that fashion, a mythic symbol is reduced to a mere sign, a psychic tchotchke, an amusing object in which one is no longer able to find sentient beauty or follow heedlessly on its unhurried, meandering, often erratic way that almost always leads away from the familiar environs of domesticity and deeper into the unfamiliar territory of one's own psyche and the sublime, often life-changing discoveries awaiting one there. I should like to point out that the Greek homonym psyche is used to denote both butterfly and soul, and as such may have something to say about the movement of the soul. Myths don't define us. They don't ground us in anything. Rather, they open us. They open us up to the questions of what it means to be a human being. They leave breadcrumbs that lead, perhaps, to a transcendent experience of life. In his book, Archetypal Psychology, A Brief Account, James Hillman wrote that the study of mythology allows events to be recognized against their mythical background. More important, however, is that the study of mythology enables one to perceive and experience the life of the soul, mythically. So please enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1973 lecture on personal mythology. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, Joseph Campbell. Now this topic, living your own, your personal myth, finding it, learning what it is and writing on it, is one that uh, first occurred to me as a topic for discussion when I read in Carl Jung's Memories, Dreams and Reflections, a passage in which he describes a crisis in his own life. It was around the years 1911-12 when he, for some six years, had been the uh, um, colleague of uh, Freud He was uh, president of the International uh, Psychoanalytic Association, which Freud founded. And as soon as Freud met Jung, he required his group to elect Jung as the uh, president of the group. What you keep reading from Freudian hands, that Jung was a disciple of Freud, is absolutely false. 
he was a disciple of Bloiler and of um, uh, Jeannet in Paris, and Freud was his colleague. Uh, in 1911 and 12, Jung uh, was working on a book which has been translated under the title of uh, Symbols of Transformation, which dealt with mythology. He had been uh, tremendously impressed and fascinated by the discovery that in the dreams of his patients, there were precise parallels to mythological themes. And then he engaged in a long, exhaustive uh, plunge into the field of mythology. And this work, which uh, deals with the interrelationship between dream consciousness and mythological consciousness and visions, uh, was the very book that made it impossible for Freud to work with him anymore. It was Freud who rejected him as a uh, colleague because Jung was no longer thinking of the complex as the entire, uh, you might say, content of the human psyche. Uh, so this rift took place, and it was a very unfortunate one. It was a very painful one for both men, and it's been inherited by their, uh, their two separate groups. The fight goes on. Um, at that time, when Jung had uh, finished with this work and uh, sat down to think about it, in retrospect, he said, it occurred to me what it is to live with the myth, to have the myth as your guiding power, your guiding um, pattern. And it occurred to me to think what it is to live without one. And then he said, I asked myself by what myth I was living, and I realized I didn't know. Now, many of us are living by myths which are guiding us and will perhaps be adequate for our entire lives. For such, there's no problem here. You know what your myth is. It's one of the great inherited religious traditions or another, and it's going to be adequate for your life. There are others in this world, and they are greatly numerous, particularly among such groups as this, university students, university people, people in the cities and the metropolises of the world, for whom the old <coughs> patterns, the old instructions, just don't hold. And when it comes to a life crisis, are of no help. You might ask yourself this question, if in a situation of total disaster to me and everything I loved and thought I lived for. I would have find myself devastated, come home, find my family murdered. As you read almost every day in the paper, it happens to somebody, a house burned up or all my career wiped out by some disaster or another. What would sustain me? What would lead me to know that I could go on living and not just crack up and quit. I've known religious people who have had such experiences. They would say, it is God's will, and this would work. And what do you have in your life that would play this role for you? Or, what is it for which you would 
sacrifice your life. What is the great thing? What is the great thing? What makes you do what you do? What is the call of your life to you? Do you have it? In the old traditions, this was given to people, and it held whole culture worlds together. Every great civilization has grown out of a mythic base. And in our day, there is great confusion, and uh, we're thrown back on ourselves. And we have to find that thing which, in truth, works for us this way. Now, how does one do, do this? Well, this was in my mind when I came across a work by a psychologist whose works I greatly admire, Abraham Maslow. And he was uh, making a sort of schedule of values which he had found in his psychological experiences people lived for. He gave a list of five values. They were survival, security, personal relationships, prestige, and self-development. And I thought as I considered those, those are exactly what are not the values that a mythically inspired person lives for. A person who really is gripped by a vocation, by a dedication, by a belief, by a zeal, will sacrifice his security, will sacrifice even his life, will sacrifice personal relationships, will sacrifice prestige, and will think nothing of personal development, will give himself to this whole thing. So I thought, well, this is exactly what is the opposite to what I've been giving my life studying. And when Christ says, he who loses his life shall find it, he gives you the clue. These five values named here are the values for which people live who have nothing to live for. Survival, security, personal relationships, prestige, and self-development. Nothing has seized them, nothing has caught them, nothing has driven them spiritually mad and worth talking to. These are the bores. <laughs> I read a marvelous definition of a bore the other day in uh, Ortega y Gasset, in a footnote. A bore is one who deprives us of our solitude without providing companionship. <laughs> now the beginning of a mythic world, of a mythic tradition, is a seizure. Something that pulls you out of yourself, beyond yourself, beyond all rational patterns. And it is out of such seizures that civilizations are built, and all you have to do is look at their monuments, and you say, and you'll see, these are the nuttiest things the mankind ever thought of. Look at the pyramids. <laughs> Try to interpret those in terms of rational means and aims and economic necessities and all this kind of business. And think of what it meant in societies with the technology of Egypt, which is to say practically nothing, uh, to build a thing like that. The cathedrals, the great temples of the world, or the work of any artist who's given his life to producing these things. That awakening of awe 
that awakening of zeal is the beginning. And that's, curiously enough, what pulls people together. People living for these five values I spoke of first go apart. But the thing that pulls people together are two things, aspiration and terror. And these are what, these are all that will make a society glue itself together. And things are so infinitely soft for us, I'm sorry, they are, that we're going apart. And there is no aspiration that's been put in front of us to pull people together. Well, don't worry about society. The problem tonight's talk is pulling yourself together. Think of the medieval world. What was it structured that society? It was the great myth that it seems to have occurred to St. Paul of the fall in the garden, redemption on the cross, and the church as the vehicle of communication of the grace of the redemption for the salvation of mankind from the fires of hell. Aspiration and terror underlie the whole thing. The whole structure of the medieval community was based on that myth, and that's the only way to explain the Middle Ages. There are economic values and all that kind of thing, but it has nothing to do with the building of Chartres Cathedral. You can't explain this economically. Read Henry Adams, Monsignor Michel, and Chart, where he speaks about this. This lunatic century between 1150 and 1250, when all the cathedrals of Europe were built, people who didn't have enough money to buy two cars. Uh, what are they living for? And you mustn't think of slave drivers. That isn't what built the cathedrals. This was a community zeal. So what has happened? This is gone. So the first question we have now is how to find in ourselves this thing that moves us, that we are really pushed by. Now this morning's talk, and I see there were a number of, uh, a number of people here who were there, so I don't want to repeat anything uh, in excess, but there is a, a certain point that uh, came, that I brought forward there that I must bring forward again, namely that mythologies are basically the same everywhere. And consequently, the images of a mythology are not primarily references to historical events. <coughs> they come from the psyche and they talk to the psyche and their primary reference is to the psyche, <coughs> to the spirit as we call it, and not to a historical event. In our tradition, however, they have been applied to historical events. The motif of the virgin birth, the motif of death and resurrection, the motif of ascension and so forth are interpreted as historical events. And uh, if you begin to doubt the possibility of these as historical events, uh, you may be troubled in your faith and you will lose the symbol because you reject it. It's, uh, it's given to you as a kind of newspaper report of something that's supposed to have happened somewhere. Now you study biology and it becomes such an intimate problem that you don't even want to consider it as to whether a virgin birth can have been uh, accomplished. Uh, is that what it referred to? Is that what the mystery is? It isn't what the mystery is. The mystery 
does not refer to something that might or might not have happened at a certain date in a certain place. It's a motif that is found in the myths all over the world and so must speak to the human psyche in another way entirely. Now when these symbols are gone, we have lost the vehicle of communication between our waking consciousness and our own deepest spiritual life. And the only problem is to reactivate the symbol, to bring it back to life and to find what it means, not to a possible history, but to you in some way or another. Now, what did Jung do when he decided to uh, find what his myth was? This is a very interesting enterprise, childish. He asked himself, what was it I most enjoyed doing when I was alone and allowed to play when I was a little boy? And what he liked to do was put little stones together and make little cities out of stones. So he said, well, I'm a big man now, I'll handle big stones. And he bought himself a piece of property in a beautiful place, Zurich Lake, the other end from the city of Zurich way out, lovely place, and he begins building a house. And as he's working here with his hands, big man he was, his imagination is activated. That reactivation of the imagination was the beginning of the work. And he found that his dreams were becoming very important to him and very rich. And then he began writing about his dreams and these silly little impulses, uh, this theme, that theme, which have come out of dreams and are not for any purpose but to bring the dream up to consciousness began coming through. Then he would make pictures of some of these dream things, always in a very solemn way, in a book. Now this book is, has been, I think it's going to be published one of these days. It uh, is the kind of thing one would not wish to have published. It is just too private. But it was his ceremonial, <coughs> ritualistic exploration of the place from which the mystery of his life came. And very soon he was realizing that his dreams corresponded to the great mythic themes that he had been uh, involved in in that work, the transformations, uh, Symbols of Transformation. The mandalas that began coming, he was the first to become interested in mandalas as a personal psychological vehicle of self-discovery. He had two very good friends who came along in the course of the years. One, Heinrich Zimmer, a great Indologist, and the other, uh, Richard Wilhelm, a great Sinologist, two men of great knowledge of the mythic lore of India and China, respectively. And uh, these helped him to recognize relationships. And so he came down to this realization. And now we come to the beginning of the story. Dreams are of two orders. Having had his imagination activated, he found that there were little dreams and big dreams. There was a level of dream consciousness that had to do with quite personal fixes, quite personal complications. This is the level of what has come to be known as the Freudian unconscious. It's the level of the personal <coughs> unconscious. It is essentially autobiographical in its character. And there will be nothing in that particular dream of yours that will, you will share 
with somebody over here. This is entirely personal. You're getting through all those, uh, the expansion of consciousness that bumps up against the taboos and thou shalt not of your childhood and infancy. But then there comes another kind of dream where you find yourself facing a problem that's not that specific to your peculiar life and socials and age situation and so forth, but you've run up against one of the great powers of man. This is the one I broached a moment ago. What is it that supports you in the face of total disaster? Man, the psyche, the ego consciousness between the cosmos and death. No other animal knows of itself between these two great mysteries. And then, deep within yourself, the mystery of your own being. Here's this ego consciousness, the cosmos, the mystery of death, and your own depths. When you're facing these, instead of whether you should or should not go to bed with somebody, uh, you are in a field of very deep, profound problems, which are the problems of the great mythologies of the world. Now, as I've said, these themes are universal. As I've said also, they occur with different historical inflections here, there, and elsewhere, just as they occur with different inflections in your life, your life, and yours. And so, for every mythological symbol, there are two aspects to be distinguished, the universal and the local. There was a very great German uh, anthropologist for whom, in fact, the field, the chair in anthropology in the University of Berlin was founded back in the 1860s, Adolf Bastian. And uh, he had uh, traveled a great deal, watching around and uh, paying attention to the customs of people. And this fact struck him that I've just mentioned. And he used the term to describe the universal aspect he used the term elementargedanke, the elementary idea. But there's no such thing as an elementary idea presenting itself to you just raw like that. It always comes in terms of the way this culture, that culture, or this other culture is experiencing it. And so he coined another term, Völkergedanke, or ethnic idea. The elementary idea shows itself always in relation to a specific culture context. And that's the ethnic context. I find that in India, the same two aspects are recognized. And there they are called, respectively, Marga and Deshi. M-A-R-G-A, -A, Marga, is from a root which has to do with an animal trail. It means the path. The path by which the symbol, that aspect of the symbol, leads you to your own illumination, the path to illumination. The other word, deshi, means D-E-S, with a stroke over it, D-E-S-I, deshi, means of the province. Now, mythological symbols, therefore, all of them work in two directions, one in the direction of marga, the other in the direction of deshi. The deshi aspect links you to the culture. It engages you in the culture. A mythologically grounded culture presents you the symbols 
which immediately evoke your participation. They are all there, and so it links you to itself. But when that culture uses symbols that are no longer vocal, that are no longer effective, that are no longer alive, you are dissociated from the culture. Marga, or the elementar gedanke, looking at the symbol in terms of its general, not local specific reference, is the path to self-discovery and illumination. And so my little thesis to begin with is the way to find your own myth <coughs> is to find those traditional symbols that speak to you. To use them, you might say, as bases for meditation. Let them work on you. A ritual is nothing but the dramatic, visual, active manifestation or representation of a myth. By participating in the rite, you are engaged in the myth, and the myth works on you, provided you are caught by the image. But when you just go through it in routine, expecting it to work magically and get you to heaven because, you know, when you're baptized, you get to heaven, that's all. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not the proper use of these things. So I would say the first thing to do is think about your own childhood. What the symbols were that were put into you, they're still there. Think not how they relate to an institution, which is probably defunct, which you can hardly respect, but think how they operate on you. Let them play on the imagination and activate the imagination and bring your own imagination into play in relation to these, and then you will be experiencing the marga or the power of these symbols to open things up for you. And it's my belief out of my own experience that there's nothing better than comparative mythological studies to let you see what the big general form of the image is and to let you get many, many aspects of approach to it. Because images are eloquent of themselves. They talk to you. And the concept system, the intellect, when it tries to explicate an image, can never exhaust its meaning, can never exhaust its possibility. Images don't essentially mean anything. They are just as you are, and they talk to some range in you that is. And so, ask an artist, what does the picture mean that you've done? Well, if he despises you enough, he'll tell you. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, the point is that uh, meaning, gosh, if you have to have me tell you what it means, then you haven't even seen it. What's the meaning of a sunset? What's the meaning of a flower? What's the meaning of a cow? The Buddha is called the Tathagata, the one thus come. And the universe is thus come. And all this dogma talk about meanings and moral values and all that, it has nothing to do with any of that. It's an is. And the way to experience one's own isness in relation to that is the way of handling these images. So much then for this basic point. There is a level of you in your dream consciousness that is the level of your nature, not of your personal biography. And your nature is of two orders. 
it is of the order of animal nature, the instinct system, which is the same in all human beings, and it's of the order of your spiritual life, what goes on from the neck up. No other animal has this great thing up here. And when Dr. Freud begins interpreting the inspirations and zeal of this end of the uh, spinal column in terms of the other end, he is, uh, he is misunderstanding the whole thing. And since uh, the whole sense of mythological religious imagery is to pitch you up into the spiritual realm, interpreting these things in that way pulls you down again and deflates and breaks the symbol. We share with the animals the desire to live, survival, security. We share with the animals the zeal for sex and the zeal for winning and prestige. I'm the winner. But there's another level, a totally other level that can come to us in a moment like that. The level that came and is described in Dante's Vita Nuova, what turned him from a mere human animal into a poet when he beheld Beatrice. She was an erotic object. One way of seeing her was that way. But what he saw was a manifestation of beauty. There's something else again. He was struck with what's called aesthetic arrest. That's the beginning of the spiritual life. <laughs> <laughs> and as he tells us in the very first pages of that charming book, the spirit of my eyes said, you behold your delight. The spirit of life in my heart said, you behold your master. And the spirit of my body said, now you will suffer. Uh, prestige, social relationships, security, all this, gone. She was this end of a beam of mystery that comes from the depth of the universe. And when he followed that beam, it led to the very seat of the image of the mystery of the world, namely the Trinity in that so, point one, you've got to find in yourself that which moves you. And you will be moved, of course, on the level of a human being. But what puts you one step beyond the first front of life? Now, there's a wonderful, a wonderful work of Yeats, a vision. I, I don't know whether you're aware of it. Fantastic work. Yeats is a relatively older man, married a young woman, who very soon after the marriage began writing automatically. And she began writing the whole philosophy of Yeats, which he didn't even know about. And uh, that's the kind of girl to marry. And uh, what came out in that was a very mysterious thing. And Yeats received this information as a revelation from informers. He was something of an occultist. And uh, this is in a vision. It's a very complicated vision. 
But there is one system of images there that seems to me very important for our present concern. It's that of what he calls the masks. The mask that you've got to put on in order to live. You've got to put a mask on. You've got to wear a costume. You've got to be something. Or seem to be something at any rate. He spoke of what he called the primary mask, which is the role that the society presents to you to play. When you're born, your parents are communicating to you patterns of life that are those of that society or of whatever the society is that that particular parent happens to care for. And the hope is that this will lead you into life. The first half of life is engagement in the world. Deshi, the imagery of the world attracting you to the world so that you put yourself into it, make an effort to live in terms of the possibilities today, in terms that the society puts upon you. When I was a little kid, they used to, you know, little boys, they just buttoned rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, all this kind of thing. What are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be garbage. The, uh, that's a great prospect. The primary mask that you take from the society. There is a second kind of mask, which he calls, and this is where it begins to be exciting, the antithetical mask. Just at the age of coming to maturity, of middle adolescence, it begins to dawn on one the sense of a prospect of my life, which is not the same as that which the society has put upon me. They never saw me before. I am a unique thing. There are great things in me, and by gosh, <clears throat> I'm going to find what they are. This is the problem of finding your own myth. Now, Yeats works this out in the image of the lunar month, the 28 days of the moon. The first day, it's dark. This is birth. You begin to grow, mostly darkness nature, and society. The end of the first week, the eighth day of the moon, it is half moon. This is the time of adolescence. This is the awakening of the full moon, namely the antithetical mass to find my own zeal, to find my own destiny, to live it. There comes a sense of great tension with the primary mask with the society that put it upon you. A breakaway, a breakthrough. Let me be. And one fights through, with good fortune or bad. The 15th day, the full moon, is the day of the fulfillment of the antithetical mask. Mid-career, mid-life. There comes a moment when you know, if I'm going to be anything, it's what I am now. Then, darkness begins to come down again. By the 22nd, the primary mask is taking over again. Nature has moved in. The remains of your individual life become smaller and smaller and smaller, and you're spending most of your time tending to doctors and sleep 
and all of that kind of business. And finally, there's the extinction. This is the mystery of life and its masks. What are you going to do when the thing breaks and it starts down? Are you just going to become an old dog and uh, become just an old thing, getting older and older? Or, in the moment of the full moon, have you made the jump to the solar light? Now, here with all the great planes round about, you must have this experience once a month. Uh, the 15th of the month, the sun is setting in the west, the moon is rising in the east, they are exactly the same size, and they're there at exactly the same moment. That's the moment of the fullness of your powers in midlife, when your zeal for your own life has reached its apogee. That moment must remain in your spirit, in your mind. The moon is symbolic of the body's life, which carries its death in it. The sun is symbolic of the pure spirit, which has no darkness, no death in it. This, this to me, is, is a marvelous thing that Yeats gives us in that, in that wonderful image. Now, a point that I want to make, and it's a very important point, is that in no culture except the modern and medieval, late medieval European culture, was one allowed to develop the antithetical mask. The character of all Oriental culture is requirement that you live according to the patterns that the culture puts upon you and that you identify yourself with the primary mask. This is what is called dharma duty, identifying yourself with the culture image. And you do not have what we call human beings in such a culture. You have repetitions of what there was before. You have what Auden once called the poetic society, the society of beings being just what beings ought to be. And they die and there's another uh, generation doing exactly the same things, the fulfilled static society. The character of our world, rather, is this one of the antithetical. We keep hearing around us all the time, the revolution, the revolution, the revolution. The revolution doesn't have to do with smashing something, it has to do with bringing forth something. And uh, if you spend all your time thinking about that which you are attacking, then you are simply bound to that in a negative sense. You have to turn in to find what the zeal is in yourself and bring that out. Marx teaches us to blame the society for our frailties. Freud teaches us to blame our parents for our frailties. Astrology teaches us to blame the universe. Uh, and the only place to look for blame is in you didn't have the guts to uh, bring up your full moon and, uh, and, uh, and live the life that was your potential. Now, let me very briefly describe the roles, the functions, which Dr. Cohen already has uh, presented, uh, that a uh, traditional mythology presents, and see uh, how much of this remains to us in our life today. The, the first function is that which I call the mystical one, of awakening in the individual a sense of awe and mystery and gratitude for the ultimate mystery of being. In the old traditions, the very old ones, the accent was on saying yay to the world, as it is, 
That's not easy. You look at the world and you see creatures eating each other, killing each other, and you realize the image of life is something that eats itself. And you may have the feeling that some have had, this is just too horrible, I will not cooperate, I will not play. This I call the Great Reversal, comes along about the 6th century BC, the Buddha, all life is sorrowful, there is escape from sorrow. Schopenhauer's word, life is something that should not have been. I won't play. Okay, pull out. Two main attitudes. Affirmation of this horrific thing beyond good and evil or negation. A third way was announced in Zoroastrianism in the idea of two deities, a good and an evil, one who represented truth, light, and the other that represented darkness and the lie. And the good deity created a good world and the evil deity corrupted that world. So that the world that we're in is a corrupt world. And there is a contest going on between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. And you are invited to participate in this battle. Join the battle of the light against the battle of darkness and reconstitute the good world. This is the sort of progressive view. And as far as I've been able to find, these are the three views that there are. One, the total affirmation. You get a marvelous saying of this in one of the Buddhist aphorisms. This world just as it is, with all its heart, all its darkness, all its brutality, is the golden lotus world of perfection. And if you don't see it as such, it's not the world's fault. You can't improve what is perfect. You can only see it and so come to your own perfection. That's to say, come to that depth in yourself which is deeper than the pains and sorrows. You have deities named Bhairavananda, the bliss and ecstasy of terror. That's what life is, a terrible, terrible ordeal. The other way is purity. I am so spiritual, I will go through the sun door and not participate in this darkness of the lunar cycle at all. And you won't see me back. The third is, let's get in there and improve it. This is like marrying someone in order to improve the person. I don't call this affirmation, uh, and it usually puts you in the position of being a little bit superior. <clears throat> if God had only asked me, I could have given <laughs> Now the second function is to present a universe through which the mystery as understood will be present. So that everywhere you look, it is as it were a holy picture opening up in back to its mystery. The work of the artist is to present objects to you in such a way that they will shine this way. That's what the artist is doing. So that through the rhythm of his formation, the object that you have looked at with indifference will be radiant and you will be fixed, aesthetic arrest. Well, in our society today, in our cosmology today, we have a prodigious universe, which isn't matched at all by the little kindergarten thing that we have in our religious tradition. Also, think of the moon walk. To me, this is the most important mythological event <coughs> of the century. 
mythological in that it transforms before everybody's eyes all the fundamental bases for mythological thinking. In all earlier periods, the notion was that these lights, the moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, all these, represent the radiance of a higher mode of being, much higher than this poor, miserable Earth. When Galileo recognized that the laws of ballistics on this Earth are the laws that operate in the planets, he began something which came to fulfillment and culmination in these moonwalks. I remember the trip before the first moonwalk, when they circled the moon and were coming back, they, the astronauts, I've forgotten which ones they were now, were asked, who's navigating? And the answer they gave was, Newton. And to me, this was one of these great statements that you don't often hear. Kant asked the question, how is it that I can't, this is in his introduction to metaphysics, that I can make mathematical calculations in this space here, which I know, I know with apodictic certainty will be valid in that space over there. How is it that I can be so sure of the continuity of space that the laws which my head can evolve, I know will be valid? When it came to going down onto the moon, nobody knew how deep the dust was going to be. I'll never forget that first foot <laughs> coming down. It was a terrific moment. Man on the moon. Nobody knew what it was going to be like, but they did know just how many ounces of energy to emit from those jets to bring that craft back within a mile of the boat that was waiting for it in the Pacific Ocean. In other words, the laws of space and energy were precisely known to man and are the laws within our own heads. Our heads, the laws of time and space and causality are in us and anything we can see or know anywhere will involve those laws. Think of now what the universe is. Space. Out of space, a coagulation that becomes a nebula. And out of the nebula, millions of galaxies. And out of this constellation of galaxies, a sun with our little planet, which has come out of that. And then out of the Earth have come we, as the eyes and the consciousness and the ears and the breathing of the Earth itself. We're Earth's children. And since the Earth itself came out of space, is it any wonder that the laws of space live in us? There's this wonderful matching. And it's not as though God had breathed anything into us. The gods we know are projections of our own fantasies, our own deep consciousness, our own deep being. They are our match in a way. Well, this is another mythology, another cosmology. Every time you look at the moon now, think about it that way, and you'll have another experience. The next function of mythology is the sociological one, of giving you laws for living. Well, no society now is in a position to say that it knows what the laws for the next 10 years are going to be. Everything that we thought was good has turned out to be... Uh, uh, inconvenience, we have this whole ecological crisis and all this kind of business, it's driven home to us that the laws of life have to change along with the modes of life. So we don't have security there. We have to ad-lib it, we have to wing it. 
Finally, there's the pedagogical function of a mythology. And as I've tried to suggest, the pedagogy of our inherited traditions does not work for all. And so you have to work out your own pedagogy. And now I want to uh, give a notion of the way in which the mythic images come to life in you as Jung describes them. I just want to give a very brief, concise statement of Jung's concept of the, uh, what he calls the archetypes of the unconscious that come into play automatically in a life in which you will be experiencing inevitably. First, he has the idea of the possibilities of your life, the energies, the potentialities and all this he calls the self. This is the self, what your total potentialities for life would be if fully fulfilled. Then you have a dawning consciousness. You can see this in the little baby as it begins to realize itself as ego. The self and ego are not the same. The ego is the center of consciousness, your consciousness of yourself and your consciousness of your world. And then there is what Jung calls the persona, the mask, the primary mask that the society puts <coughs> upon you the rules for life in this club, how you have to behave, what's regarded as proper, what is improper, and so forth and so on. This is the first big tension, the self, dark potential, the ego, which is learning about outside and inside, and the persona system. Now we move one step further in. There are aspects of your impulse of your potentialities that the society is not recognizing, that you are not recognizing, that either you haven't known are there or that you have repressed. This Jung calls the shadow. It is the opposite pole to the ego. If you think of the self as a great circle with a center, and you think of consciousness as well above that center, you think of the ego as up here, the center of consciousness, the shadow will be way down here. It's that you which you won't allow to come through. And it includes good, I mean, potent, as well as dangerous and disastrous aspects. This is you as you might have been. And the shadow, mythologically, is always of your own sex. It is that aspect of you which is what you would have been if you had allowed yourself to be that way. And you can recognize who it is by simply thinking who the people are you don't like. They are projections of that you which you would be. Otherwise, they wouldn't mean very much to you. People who excite you, either positively or negatively, have caught something projected from yourself. I do not like you, Dr. Fell. The reason why I cannot tell, but this I, I know and know quite well. I do not like you, Dr. Fell. Why? Because you're my shadow. <laughs> I don't know whether any decent person here has the kind of experience I have, but there are people I despise and hate the minute I see them. And uh, these are uh, that aspect of myself which I will not allow myself to admit. Then there's the other thing. That figure of the opposite sex that evokes you. This Jung calls for men, the woman who attracts them, the anima, and for women, the man who attracts them, the animus. Now you can go to a dance, and there's some perfectly decent, nice-looking girl who's sitting there all alone, and there's some other little bumblebee with everybody all around her, just this kind of thing. What, what's she got? 
want something about the way the eye is. And uh, it just evokes anima, projections from all the males in the neighborhood. Uh, there are ways to get yourself up that way, and women don't always know what it is. I've seen people who are perfectly good anima objects so make themselves up that they repel the uh, anima uh, projection. At any rate, how do you fall in love at first sight? How can you fall in love with anybody whom you don't know? But bing, I was hit in the eye, and I've been a quiver ever since. That one is it. Okay, so then you make the next big mistake. You marry it. <laughs> and it doesn't take long for the fact to show through. And when the fact shows through, you say, I am disillusioned. <laughs> you take the illusion back. There it is, waiting for the next little bang. Well, there are people who go through life uh, marrying and uh, taking back their anima. Their anima. <laughs> now, the one fact, the one archetypal fact is, it's going to happen, that's all. What you have married is a fact. And the fact shows through. So what are you going to do when a fact shows through? You had an ideal. You married that. Here comes a fact. It does not correspond to the ideal. <laughs> you suddenly notice things. And um, there's only one attitude that will solve the situation. Compassion. This poor, poor fact. It does not correspond to my ideal. It's only a human being. Well, I'm a human being, too. So by meeting a human being for a change and having to live with it and be nice to it with a shared compassion for the fallibilities, uh, you may be brought to life as a human being. This is something that can be applied also to what you find out about the world. Not only political life, but all life stinks. And uh, <clears throat> you must have compassion for that. And so do you, by the way. Uh, th this is what's called the awakening of love. Thomas Mann in the Tonio Kurga has the story. He was a youth among people who uh, really were rather different from himself, and so he's a, one of those excluded ones, which so many of us are, and uh, we feel quite alone and special. And so he goes to a place where there are a lot of, of alone and special people, namely sort of Hippieville of that time, Bohemia. And here were all these people uh, with very fine intellects who knew how the world should be, and they, they were a bunch, you might say, of newspaper, potential newspaper people. They knew how to correct the whole world. This is, these, uh, the world falls into two, two orders. People who can do things but don't know very much, and people who know a lot but can't do anything. And, uh, he's with this, this other crowd. And uh, then he leaves them too, because this cold intellect criticizing everything as though they were way above it, it doesn't appeal to him anymore. Then he writes back to them and says, I know, I may seem like something uh, rather sentimental and romantic uh, in my love for the middle class, you might say, this, uh, these blue-eyed blondes that he was born among. 
But he said, I've given them my heart, and I know just as well as you do what their faults are. And they, what might be called cruel discipline of an artist, of a writer, is to write with perfect truth, to cut them down. And when you name somebody, when you describe somebody, all you can describe are his faults. But how do you do it? Do you describe those faults with love? Because after all, the only thing that's lovable is the fault in a person. Perfection is anything but lovable. It's cold. The Buddhas are perfect. They're all alike. And they've left the world. Anybody who's in the world is imperfect. And his imperfection is what keeps him here. So the world is a constellation of imperfections. <laughs> and uh, you perhaps are the most imperfect. And by your love for the world, you both name it cruelly and love what you have thus named. He calls this, as a wonderful word, erotic irony. And uh, this is the way to save your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> then I won't deal with the next part of life after the noon and the moon begins to close down. That's the moment of disengagement. I could lecture on this for, now that I'm retired for uh, quite a while. It's a wonderful experience. Uh, the, the awakening of all that was waiting for you to find it now. <clears throat> this, then, is the great cycle. Don't try to live your life too soon. I had a very amusing experience to lecturing in uh, Oregon to a group, and I was talking about Dante's uh, view of the ages of man. He names four ages. The first is infancy goes to the age of 25, excuse me. <laughs> the qualities for infancy are obedience, a sense of shame, comeliness of appearance, and sweetness of conduct. Then you come at the age of 25 to what he calls maturity, and this will last to 45. This is the high moment of life. For this he names the values the medieval knight. They are Temperance, courage, love, courtesy, and loyalty. When you will have lived your life in terms of what the society asks of you, you will come to a moment at mid-career, 35, when perhaps the sense of it all will dawn, and you will have an experience of what formerly you had simply been taught. Then you are eligible to teach. And the age from 45 to 70, he calls the age of age and wisdom. The qualities there are wisdom, and justice, and generosity, and uh, humor, or uh, cheerfulness. Got nothing to lose. From 70 on, he calls decrepitude. And uh, <laughs> the uh, qualities there are, looking back over your life, with gratitude and forward to death as a return home. Now this is a little schedule, this is a life pattern, this is a mythos. Well, when I finished my lecture, one young lady came up to me and she said, oh, Mr. Campbell, you just don't know about the modern generation. And she was very serious. She said, we go directly from infancy to wisdom. <laughs> I said, that is great, all you've missed is life. <laughs> 
So I say uh, the way to find your myth is to find your zeal, to find your support, to know what stage of life you're in. The problems of youth are not the problems of age. By listening too much to gurus and so forth, you try to jump over the whole darn thing and uh, back off and become wise before you've experienced that in relation to which it makes some point to be wise. And uh, this thing has to, has to come gradually. And now to conclude this talk, uh, I think I may have brought this image here two years ago but it's one that struck me and seems to me the essential image of living one's life in the Western mode, of the antithetical mask, finding it, having the courage of it. It has to do with the Cuesta del Saint Graal, which is an early 13th century grail romance composed by an anonymous Cistercian. We don't know who it was. And there's a moment there in Arthur's uh, banquet hall where all the knights are assembled, and Arthur would not let people start to eat until an adventure had occurred. Well, in those days, adventures were rather normal, and uh, so people didn't go hungry. And they were waiting for this day's adventure, and it did indeed occur. It occurred in the way of the grail, showing itself, but it was covered with a great radiant cloth, and then withdrew. And all were ravished, sat there in awe. Finally, Gawain, Arthur's nephew, stood up and he says, I propose a vow to this company that we should all go in quest of that grail to behold it unveiled. And now we come to the text that interested me. The text said they thought it would be a disgrace to go forth in a group. Each entered the forest, adventurous, at that point which he himself had chosen where it was darkest and there was no way or path. Because where there's a way or path, it is someone else's path. And each human being is a unique phenomenon. I think it's something like 18,000 million cells in the brain alone. There are no two brains alike. There are no two hands alike. There are no two human beings alike. You can take your instructions and your guidances from others, but you must find your own path. And this is the quality of the European spirit, which for other cultures is so silly and romantic. What is it we are questing for? It's the fulfillment of that which is potential, and it's potential in ourselves. And in questing for it, it's not an ego trip. It is an adventure to bring to fulfillment that which is to be your gift to the world, which is yourself. There's nothing you can do that's more important than being fulfilled. You become a sign, you become a signal. And this is, I say, the way to find and live and become the realization of your own personal myth. Professor Campbell began his lecture by noting that the idea of personal mythology first occurred to him while reading the foreword to C.G. Jung's Symbols of Transformation. In the foreword to that book, Jung writes that, quote, One of my principal aims was to free medical psychology from the subjective and personalistic bias that characterized its outlook at the time. And the personalism 
in the views of Freud and Adler that went hand in hand with the individualism of the 19th century failed to satisfy me, end quote. They failed to satisfy Jung because these views of the psyche left no room for what Jung called objective, impersonal facts, those aspects of the psyche that are derived from collective influence and are not particularly shaped by personal experiences. In other words, Jung too was dissatisfied with the tendency to privilege the individual and the personalistic, driving people more and more into the depths of themselves and thereby removing them from the world from the collective, creating a condition of iatrogenic narcissism or a narcissism brought on by the analysis itself in which the patient may believe they have found the truth. But before I digress too far, and I realize that ship may already have sailed, the statement that captured Campbell's attention was this. Jung writes, I was driven to ask myself in all seriousness, what is the myth you are living? I found no answer to this question and had to admit that I was not living with a myth or even in a myth, but rather in an uncertain cloud of theoretical possibilities, which I was beginning to regard with increasing distrust." So Jung decided that he must discover what myth he was living, and he regarded this effort as the task of tasks. Discovering the myth he was living became one of Jung's central preoccupations until finally, in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, he writes, quote, I have now undertaken in my 83rd year to tell you my personal myth, unquote. Jung died at the age of 85, so perhaps the undertaking required the better part of a lifetime to understand. Perhaps one's personal myth can only be known retrospectively as one nears one's end. Discovering a personal myth, however, is hardly an irrelevant pursuit or some idle fancy as much depends on it. As Professor Campbell asked in the lecture we just listened to, what gives you the strength to go on living after catastrophe turns one's life upside down? For what would you sacrifice your life? The old myths and broken symbols of our earlier cultures used to supply the answers to those kinds of questions, but today, we're left to wrestle with trying to find our own answers to those unsettling questions. In this lecture, Professor Campbell recalls the hierarchy of needs created by humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow. This hierarchy of needs is commonly illustrated as a pyramid with one's basic needs, like food and water, safety and security, forming the bottom or the foundation of the pyramid. The next level of the pyramid consists of psychological needs, love, belongingness, esteem, and feelings of accomplishment. And finally, at the top of the pyramid, there's the need for self-fulfillment, for creativity, and achieving one's potential. Maslow called this last category of needs self-actualization. There are some problems with this model, and contemporary criticisms of Maslow's hierarchy began with the concept of a need hierarchy itself. Needs don't seem to be organized hierarchically. And what's more, the satisfaction of one need state may not move one to address a higher need state. Significantly, belongingness and love needs, which Maslow locates farther up the pyramid, may be the most necessary for human survival. 
In fact, most of the basic needs enumerated by Maslow require the aid of social supports and social bonds to be satisfied. Professor Campbell is also critical of this model, saying that the needs Maslow identified are the concerns of people who have nothing else to live for, people for whom nothing has seized them, nothing has pulled them out of themselves. To have been seized by something larger than oneself, an ideal, a transcendent revelation, a sublime vision, is often terrifying, and for which we willingly will surrender the basic needs of comfort, safety, and security. Not to mention, of course, that surrendering ourselves to that seizing ideal is often antithetical to our esteem needs, because when we're operating from that condition, we're sometimes seen as deluded or misguided, perhaps even crazy. But that seizure ushers in what Campbell called a mythic world. It creates the opportunity for thinking and experiencing life mythically. Professor Campbell states that waking consciousness and a sense of living in the mysterium, the deep mystery of life, have been disconnected and need to be reconnected. One way to reconnect is through dreams. Jung suggests that the ancient quality of some dreams is not an artifact of history. Jung says the dream teaches us that there is an identity of fundamental human conflicts which is independent of time and place. As Campbell points out, Jung believed that dreams correspond to myth, and the big dreams we have bring us face to face with the fundamental problems of living a human life, the mystery of life and death, our own sometimes shocking, appalling, and yet also sublime interior depths, and the deep, unfathomed human universals that are dealt with in the world's great mythologies. One can therefore use the symbols of myth as well as the symbols created by one's dreams as subjects for meditation and reverie, letting them work on one's own imagination and emotions and see what is revealed in that process. One way into the personal aspect of myth is to try to remember the symbols and stories that were powerful in one's childhood and think about how they impact you now in the present. In childhood, we are much more ourselves and we live so much closer to the unconscious under the influence of the primordial forces of life that seem to dissipate as we grow older and more scientifically sophisticated. Jung found that he could understand the myth that was living him by indulging in the pastimes that occupied him as a child. In his case, it was building and stonework. He would use small stones and pebbles and mud for mortar. He was building small towns with stones and mud and he was startled to discover he was building the tiny town as a rite, in a ritual fashion. Asking himself what he was doing, he discovered that he had no answer to his question. All he had was the inner certainty that he was on his way to discovering his own myth. Also in this lecture, Professor Campbell touches on a work by William Butler Yeats called A Vision. This is a strange and particularly challenging text, and it belongs not to Yeats's poetry, but more to his interests in the perennial philosophy, which Aldous Huxley summed up in his 1945 book by the same name with the Sanskrit phrase, tat tam asi, that thou art, representing the notion that each human being 
is an expression of the absolute principle of being. And the task for each of us is to discover the inextinguishable principle that we, in fact, are. One may immediately see why such a book as A Vision might have captured Campbell's interest. But when Yeats first published the book in 1925, a book I might add that he and his wife wrote while experimenting with automatic writing, it was met with critical confusion and largely dismissed. But by the early 1960s, when unconventional spirituality became more interesting and acceptable, critical opinions of this work began to be reconsidered. Nevertheless, Yeats's system in this text is incredibly complex and stubbornly arcane. It reflects his interests as a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and I really don't pretend to have any mastery of it at all. Campbell, however, appears to, and points to the way Yeats in this volume works with the image of the mask. Yeats's mask immediately calls to mind the archetype Jung called the persona, which means mask, and which are aspects of one's character, their roles one inhabits. And we present these masks to others in various social circumstances of life. Sometimes you'll hear the persona referred to as the conformity archetype. Yeats's system begins with archetypal opposites, dark and light. Yeats calls the dark side primary because it is the utterly formless primal matter where life begins and ends. And the light side he calls antithetical because it represents ideal bodily form and beauty in precise opposition to everything primary. This pair is always in direct opposition. If the primary is waning, the antithetical is waxing. Phase one is the extreme primary end of the phases, or gyres, whose image is the completely dark moon while phase 15 is the extreme antithetical phase, the brilliant full moon. Interpreting Yeats, Campbell states that the primary mask is the role society expects one to play. The second kind of mask, the antithetical mask, prompts one to search for a standpoint toward society that is more aligned with who and what one really is. Yeats says the primary mask is often felt to be an impediment that feels confining because one can't be fully oneself. The antithetical mask, according to Yeats, functions both to create self and simultaneously create a repository of desire based on who it is one wants to become. After one achieves what Yeats calls perfect selfhood, the mask no longer reveals identity, but in fact, it protectively conceals it. Campbell also notes that all the associations of revolution or rebellion with the antithetical mask are not necessarily about breaking up society or smashing something. It's about turning inward to find what one is truly passionate about, finding one's zeal, as Campbell puts it, and then bringing that zeal, that passion, out into the world. The best way to find one's myth, Campbell offers, is to find your zeal. To find the idea, the image, the belief that can support you, a self-organizing principle that gives you recourse, as Horace wrote, should the whole frame of nature break, in ruin and confusion hurled, he, unconcerned, would hear the mighty crack and stand secure amid a falling world.
this zeal, this passion, this, dare I say, bliss, is hard won. It's not found in self-help books, nor in the New Age packaging of age-old magic and wishes. It's found in not wanting any other life but the one you have, in living the only life you have with a radical acceptance, and by knowing what stage of life you're in and what its particular challenges are. You can't magically jump over all the difficulty and pain of life or be pulled out of it by religious conversion or the enlightening touch of a guru. You can, Campbell says, take instructions and guidance from others. But like those grail-questing Arthurian knights, you must make your own path in the dark forest. The quest isn't about finding fame or fortune. It's a quest to fulfill the potential that lies unrealized in each one of us. The fulfillment of one's potential necessarily reconnects one to the world, as one's fulfillment may ultimately be accomplished only in the world, and it subsequently acts upon the world. It isn't achieved outside the flow of life. Rather, it is the flow of life. Like the Logos of the Gospel of John, one's fulfilled potential is made flesh and dwells among us. As Professor Campbell put it, the Grail Quest is the adventure to bring one's fulfillment, one's gift, to the world. And the greatest gift you have to give the world is yourself. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next month with another Joseph Campbell lecture on Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.